Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the sixth week of our series called Family Misconceptions. This week, Pastor Mike will be teaching from Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Now, we are looking at Ephesians 5 and and, and this whole passage that it teaches on marriage, and and coming into that, we're going to look this morning at, at how do we deal with conflict in the context of marriage? But even as I go there, I realize that while my focus will be more in the context of marriage, most of the principles we're going to be talking about this morning really apply to conflict in general. And so most of these things are really applicable to all of us, all areas of life, you know, all those various kind of relationships we have, the differences that we have across the board. Uh, So it's a very practical life, even though I'm going to focus more specifically in marriage. But even when we try to understand this whole issue of conflict in marriage, the idea is how should we understand it? You know, I've talked to a lot of people over the years who basically expressed the opinion that, um, boy, if you had a really good marriage, you would never fight. The best marriages are characterized by the absence of conflict in their opinion. And, and um, now I don't think that's actually a right belief. It's actually, I think, a wrong belief that has several uh, unintended negative consequences. First of all, what happens is because a lot of people believe this to be true, therefore, they hide their conflict. They don't let anybody see it. They never talk about it. And and the fact is we're very private about the conflict and the issues that we may face in our marriage to the point that we look at it and we say, well, everybody else gets along. No one else is fighting. So therefore, I have to have as good a marriage too. So it just kind of creates the cycle that we become very private, very, you know, we hide our struggles. And and not only that, but another result that comes from that is because we feel like a good marriage and a mature Christian isn't going to fight in their marriage, therefore, I don't want to admit that I have struggles. And I don't not only admit it, but I don't ask for help. And because I don't ask for help, we get in some negative cycles in the way that we argue in our marriage, and we don't have anyone jumping in to help us figure out how to do it right. See, I don't think that it's right for us to see that a good marriage is characterized by an absence of conflict. And and I say that even from some of the principles that we've been looking at through this series. So if you go back to Ephesians 5.31, Paul talks about something about the very definition of what the goal of marriage is, quoting from Genesis. He says this, a marriage is a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's two people becoming one, becoming unified. And what we need to realize is that two becoming one isn't an easy process. Specifically because we don't start out as two of similar, almost the same, but we start out as two very different individuals that God now seeks to make one. Think about all the differences between you and your spouse. You know, one big one is often background differences. I mean, there are huge background differences between me and Sandy. Um, I mean, I I was raised here in Akron, Ohio, and my dad was starting a business and, and, uh, you know, highly valued education. We grew up in a Christian family, Christians in their marriage. I grew up in in a church at the chapel, and 6,000 people when we were there, this huge church. And then you have Sandy. You know, she's raised in Isabella, which is in the upper peninsula of that state up north that we don't talk about. And uh, Isabella is a tiny town of 200 people. You know, her dad worked in a, in a lumber mill, and, and uh, you know, they, 
didn't have the same value of education. She was raised initially as a Jehovah's Witness. And, and then in her teens, as she started attending church, it was a church of 25 people. Our parents couldn't be more different. Our, their, their marriages couldn't be more different. Our siblings couldn't be more different. In fact, at one point, we had met with a counselor, and he had given us this background and personality profile. And, and, and he's looking at it and interpreting it, and he kind of looks at us and shakes his head, and he says, y'all shouldn't even be friends, let alone married. You know, it's kind of like, you know, there's no hope for you. It's like, okay, well, this is discouraging. We are so different, and it's not just even our background. You know, we have different personalities and different expectations. And, and then on top of that, when we get married, one of us is a man and one of us is a woman. And as we talked about last week, the way that we are wired, our thinking, our perspectives, everything is totally different. And here we have these two radically different individuals that God says, okay, I want to make two one. And you think that's going to happen without tension? Of course, there's going to be conflict. And, and on top of that, we have all the stresses of life that we're dealing with, with kids and the demands and finances and, and extended family and pets and all these things. And, and we respond differently to all those stresses and conflict is inevitable. See, it's not that you have a bad marriage. It's just inevitable. In fact, I love this quote from Gary Chapman. He said, conflicts are not a sign that you married the wrong person. They simply affirm that you're human, that you're in a relationship. And all this is really hard. And the, and the question is, we're going to have conflict. How are we going to deal with it? In this past week, I did some study, and I, and I ran across three studies, uh, all secular studies, all by people that had taken, studied this issue of marriage, and they, they looked at couples for a decade or more. And all three came to a very similar conclusion, basically one of the greatest predictors of how a marriage will go, whether it will stay together or get end a divorce, is how the couple handles conflict. All of them found that if the couple fails to resolve conflict well, or if they deal with it in an unhealthy way, that's one of the greatest contributors to their eventual dissolution of their marriage. Now, I don't, can't get into all three, but let me give you just one example. This is from uh, the book, Fighting for Your Marriage. And he, uh, he, he writes, the greatest predictor of marital success and failure is how a couple deals with the little conflicts that they encounter every day. In the long run, what matters most is how the couple recovers intimacy when they get lost on the way to the party, when he says something that hurts her feelings, or when she criticizes his decision. And the idea is that this is a huge issue. But it's not that conflict is bad. It's normal. And actually, it's not only normal, but I think if we have a right perspective on conflict, we see that there's actually a positive element to it. And here's why. Because what we said in the very beginning, marriage is two very different people seeking to go through a process of becoming united as one flesh. But again, because we're different, that process is going to involve conflict because what it's doing is it's exposing those differences. The simple rule is this, two don't become one without tension. I mean, that's just, it's a normal process because you have these two individuals that when we go through life, we have all these differences, differences that define us as individuals and that would naturally divide us, separate us. And suddenly, as we work to become one, we have to somehow these come, come, to, you know, come to the surface and we have to work towards them in such a way that we resolve them so the end result is that we're moving closer to becoming unified. So the question is, how are we going to deal with it? We're going to have conflict. 
And, and we have a couple choices. I mean, sometimes we can handle it very poorly and we take you know, conflict and, and we say the wrong things and we, we not only leave the problems there, but then over time we actually add to even greater wounds. Or a common approach is that we try to avoid the conflict. You know, we, we, we don't want to deal with it. So we just say, I don't want to fight, you know, let's get along. But here's what happens is when we do that, we accept the disunity that exists between us. I'm going to tell you, I have found that some of the most dysfunctional marriages that I've ever worked with are couples that never fight. And you wouldn't expect that, but here's what I found. Is that these couples that never fight, you know why they never fight? They don't care anymore. They don't care about trying to become one. They've given up on trying to seek unity. So they live together as roommates, and it's just kind of, I'm just going to put up with them. And, and the fact is, is that do they do things that disagree? Yeah, but I don't care because I'm not trying to become one. My friends, if we look at it and we say, well, we just, we're going to avoid it, what we're doing is we're giving up on that process of finding unity, of, of finding, you know, discovering joy and passion within that relationship. No, what God calls us to do is to seek to address those differences in a way that is working towards true unity and oneness. But that only happens through conflict. It's always going to be hard. It's always risky. But it can be rewarding. But I love a passage that most people don't think of as applying towards marriage, but I think it does. In Proverbs 27, 17, it says, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. See, God has created us in this relationship to be helpmates, that we sharpen each other, that we're stronger because of it. That's what we've been talking about in previous weeks about these differences. But here's what we need to realize in that picture of ironing, sharpening iron. Iron doesn't sharpen iron without some friction, without some sparks. The only way for iron to become sharpened is with some sparks. And that means we need to engage each other. So the principle that we need to remember is that good relationships aren't characterized by an absence of conflict, but it's characterized by the resolution of conflict. See, if you're looking at it and you say, if you don't have any conflict, it isn't because there aren't any issues between the two of you. I'm Sandy and I've been married almost 31 years. We haven't gotten to the point where we've dealt with everything yet. And what happens is that you continue to have new things in life that continue to new, new problems. And, and I don't think that's going to happen soon where we're like, oh, we've, we've dealt with everything. There's still conflict between us. And if there's not conflict, it's not because we don't have issues. It's because, in a sense, what we're saying is, you know, this is tough. I don't want to make her unhappy. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to do the hard work of arguing. And so basically, we say, it isn't worth it. It isn't worth the headache to work through the issue. And we've all done that at times. We've all avoided things because we just feel like it's just not worth it. Worth it. You know, so we just, you know, I'll just give it. I'll give her away. But when we're doing that, what we're really saying is, I would rather accept the continuation of this thing that separates us than to do the hard work of the conflict that would move us towards unity. Now, there might some, be some there that's like, you know, a guy sitting there elbowing his wife and he's saying, honey, do you hear this? We fight all the time. This is great. We must be really healthy. We got in two fights on the way to church. This is great. We're, we're doing great. Well, it's not saying that fighting is necessarily good. Again, it's the resolution of conflict. If you have a lot of conflict and it's not being resolved positively, you're not becoming one. That's not a good thing. But on the other hand, if you're avoiding everything, that's not good either. 
See, we've got to look at it and say, there's a purpose in conflict. What is the purpose? Why, why is it that, that conflict's a good thing? Why should we seek conflict when appropriately? Why do we argue? You see, if the driving purpose of your conflict is wrong, then I guarantee you, you will not resolve it well. The purpose of conflict isn't to get your way on an issue. It isn't to instruct or to correct your spouse. It isn't to work against our spouse and somehow get our way, get our will. It's instead, in a sense, a call to struggle with our spouse to find God's will. So what's the purpose of your conflict? Are you fighting against your spouse with the goal of scoring a personal victory? Or are you fighting with them and for the, with them for the purpose of oneness in your marriage? It is, is it oppositional? where it's like we have two different things and it's a win or a lose. Is it my agenda or is it something that we realize, hey, together we want to fight for something. There is something that is so important that it is worth the discomfort. It's worth the unpleasure. It's worth you know, maybe risking getting each other mad for a period of time because we're committed to being one, to pursuing oneness. That's something that we fight for. And that means that at times, if I'm doing the right thing, the right thing for my wife, a wrong thing, if I'm going the wrong path, if I'm ignoring, if I'm doing, the right thing for her to do is to confront me, to bring it to the table. Because she says, I care, not because I'm selfish, I want more of something, I want my way, but I care enough about our marriage that it's worth fighting for. I want to tell you, even as I was working on this, this is struggling with um, the idea of saying, how do I take all these ideas that I have, how do I put them together? And I realized that one of the problems is that there's a sense that there are two different kinds of conflict that we deal with in life in general, but specifically in marriage. They are related, but they are different. And, um, and, and there's the point where we almost need to understand the difference. The first one is kind of what we've been mainly talking about up till now, this idea that there's a conflict of working through our differences, working toward this oneness. It's this whole challenge of we start out with two individuals and the goal is that we want to work towards one. We're two different people with all these different ideas and and we want to be one in our finances and one in our parenting decisions and one in our extended family and, and a host of other issues. And oftentimes this kind of conflict starts on what seems to be a minor issue. You know, it seems it's over a little decision. But yet we've got to realize, even from the studies that I referred to earlier, if we don't deal with it well, those minor things can, can, you know, can steamroll and suddenly become a major division in the relationship. Because oftentimes, the real issue isn't what you're fighting over. You see, it's not arguing over you know, this decision or whether we're going to do this or that. The real issue is, are you fighting against your spouse to get your way, or are you fighting with them for oneness? It's how we handle the conflict. It is what is the purpose? Are we working with them or are we working against them? Now, the second kind of conflict is something that happens in all of our relationships to some degree and some even harder or worse than others. The fact is because we're all sinners, we're going to wrong each other. I've sinned against my wife and she's sinned against me. We've wronged each other, caused wounds. And the second kind of conflict is one where we need to work through the wounds and the wrongs that we've done to each other towards a healing. Now, some of those wounds could be really significant. Sometimes it's a significant betrayal. It's an, an act of an adultery or it's an uh, abuse or it's an ongoing pattern of, of deception that is revealed. 
in my experience, oftentimes it's smaller things, and it can be smaller things that is, are repeated that can do great damage. So it's verbal abuse or emotional abuse, and you could take one item and one statement, and it's not that big, but when it's repeated over time, man, it can do huge damage. It's ongoing apathy towards the other person or the relationship. It's some kind of destructive, addictive behavior or an ongoing a pattern of irresponsibility. And, and these are even examples, and, and, he, and here's a warning on this. Is some of those examples can be big things, and you might think, well, but I feel wounded and I feel distant, and, but it's not like they've cheated on me. And here's what you need to realize. If you feel like your spouse has wronged you and wounded you in some way, take it seriously and deal with it as soon as possible. Because if you don't deal with it now, challenge, chances are that unresolved issue will continue to grow. And not only that, if you don't resolve it, it's going to become a hook in your heart that Satan's going to use to be able to do greater damage in the relationship. So it's always better to deal with it before it becomes huge. If it's an issue, deal with it. And uh, now there are a relationship between these two. So sometimes I start on a little issue and then I deal with it wrong and I create an issue in the way I deal with it. I sin against Sandy and... But even then, now it's two things. It's I've got to resolve the thing that started as the division, and now I also need to deal with the wound that I caused and, and the way, wrong way that I handled it. So, so let's look at them separately. Look at starting with the first kind. How do we have these principles for resolving differences? And how do we go through these ideas that when the two are becoming one, and how do we work through this? And I'm going to go through some points really, really quickly. This is very introductory. I could spend a whole lot more time on any, any of these points. And, and I'm going to do this by looking at some things the Bible calls us to do and things that it calls us not to do. First of all, the do's. What does God call us to do in resolving conflict? And the first one can seem surprising, and that is that God calls us to admit our anger and frustration. Now, the thing is, it's often common for us to think that it's wrong to be angry or frustrated, you know, to, when we have conflict, you know, we should just be peace and really peace. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that anger is wrong. It doesn't ever command us, thou shall not get angry. In fact, in Ephesians 4, when it talks about the issue of conflict, look what it says, Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It starts by saying, be angry. It's not a command, you know, try to get angry, but it's saying, you're going to get angry naturally. The fact is, we have two that are becoming one. We're going to offend each other. We're going to disagree. It's going to be frustrating, and it's important for us to admit it. Now, why is that? Because if we don't admit it, if we think that anger is wrong, we're not comfortable with it, then what happens is we get angry, and we don't understand why we get angry, because I'm not admitting that I'm angry. And so I don't track it back to the issue. Why am I struggling with this? And not only that, because I don't admit that I'm angry, therefore I bury it. I don't address it. And that leads to the second thing that he calls us to do. He calls us to address it and to resolve it. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. You know, deal with it as soon as possible. But again, if you don't understand you've got an issue, you're, getting, you're not going to deal with the second point of seeking to resolve it uh, in a timely manner. Now, what does it mean to not let the sun go down in your anger? Some people take this very literally. The idea is saying, well, don't go to bed if you're angry. You resolve it. We've tried to do that. We've had some very long nights. In fact, we've had some very long nights that have spilled over into some very long mornings. And, uh, and, and the fact is that at times we've done that. At times, practically, it's not possible to say, we're going to stay up all night until, you know, you've got to go to work. You've got to... 
it's not always practical. I don't think it's a literal command, don't let the sun go down. I think the principle is this. Be angry, don't sin, and deal with it rapidly, quickly. And generally in marriage, that means we're able to generally find a time somewhere in the next 24 hours we can do that. And it may be, I can't deal with it now, you know, I, you know I'm off the way to work, I can't do that, or you know, we need to get some rest because I need to get up the next morning. Hey, but here's when we're going to deal with it. And we're gonna to commit to deal with it on a timely manner. And then as we do so, the Bible also then calls us to listen to understand. Now, usually when we get in an argument, the emotions heat up, and, and there's a lot more heat than there is light in what we're saying. There's a lot more emotion than there is content. And not only that, we argue our point, and then my wife will start arguing back. And, and to be honest, I don't think I'm the only one that does this, but I start listening to her, and my listening, I'm really tr- not trying to understand her. I'm trying to listen to her arguments to say, okay, how can I poke holes in it? You know, I'm preparing my response. I'm not really listening to understand her. But look at what the Bible says about this. In James chapter 1, 19, great passage about relationships in general, but marriage particularly. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. What it's saying is when we're here in the middle of the context, be quick to hear. You know, take the time, make it a priority to say, I really want to hear, and being slow to speak. Those things go together. So I'm not looking and saying, okay, what is my answer? No, I want to take time to understand, not to respond to her, but if I really try to understand her. And you know what happens, I find, is that if I'm really trying to understand her, that really calms down the relationship because I'm working with her to understand her, not against her, to argue against her. And, and I actually, when I listen to her, I find that she sometimes actually has a point. I didn't think she did, but she might. There might be some truth in what she's saying. And I need to be quick to hear and understand, slow to speak, and then slow to become ang- angry. To realize I don't want our, our arguments to be about heat and no light. I would much rather them be about a lot of light and not as much heat. Now, there's three things God calls us to do. He also calls us not to do some things, some things to avoid in the conflict. And the first grows from the verse we looked at a minute ago in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Okay, it's angry. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be frustrated, but never use it as an excuse for sin. We will be angry. We will have conflict. But God's standards for how we treat each other don't change when we're angry. It's not like God saying, well, this is what you do, but well, I'm, I've got a temper and that justifies me doing this. No, it never changes or justifies wrong behavior. And usually, you know where that wrong behavior comes out? It comes out in our speech. So I get angry and I get frustrated. And I'm saying things against my wife. I'm saying things critical. I'm, I'm you know, pulling up old, you know, old things from the past. And, and, and we're, you know, it becomes harmful. And you know, I think that God knew this would be the case. So he gives us Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, and we saw just a minute ago. And, and then a couple verses later, keeping that mindset in context, he says, okay, now still when you're arguing, he said, okay, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as building others up. It fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So even when I'm arguing, no corrupting talk, nothing that tears down, nothing that, that hurts or rots in any way, but instead in all circumstances, including an argument, Our speech towards each other should be defined by only what is good for building the other person up. That it may give grace to those who hear. Friends, we need to realize the power of our words. That's true in general, but it's especially true in our marriage, our parenting, or 
the, the fact is, is that, and let's take marriage. When I speak something negative or critical, here's this person who has let down her guard and trust me, and the fact is that my negative, hurtful words can do incredible damage, and hers can do, likewise, incredible damage. There is never any justification for those negative words, for harmful words. We need to realize that if, even if well, I'm usually good, well, one harmful word spoken in an argument will do far more damage than a hundred positive, well-chosen words that we tried, you know, carefully tried to say. I mean, they can stick with you. They can do incredible damage. God, there should be zero tolerance for that. And not only that, we need to see that when we do that, it's our failure. Anytime that we speak harmful words, it's not a reflection on the weakness of our spouse or the other person. It's always a reflection of our own weakness. It's always an expression of our own lack of self-control, our own lack of being able to deal with our anger issues. So don't use an excuse for sin. The second don't is don't let the conflict go unresolved. You know, we need to realize that it's not just, uh, you know, sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll, they'll be like, well, you know, we dealt with this and, and just forgive and forget. You know, the Bible just says forgive and forget and we talked about it once and we put it behind us. Even to the point where I've dealt with even couples where it's, you know, it's an affair or something really significant. Well, I told them I was sorry, and now we should just forgive and forget. Well, that's not resolving the issue. See, we need to realize that that's often just ignoring the pain, and God calls us to resolve it. Look again at Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And what happens if we do? Give no opportunity to the devil. See, if we fail to resolve it, we're actually giving an opportunity to Satan. We're giving him a foothold into our life that he digs in and he, and he is able to tempt us and do greater division uh, within our marriage. It does great damage. It never works. So often we can just kind of bury it and just kind of move on and silent treatment or something like that. It never works. In fact, I was reminded of a story of a husband and wife that had an argument and they were, you know, just giving each other the silent treatment and the man was going to bed and he suddenly realized that he had to get up, you know, early the next day. He had a, um, uh, a plane, plane trip for a business trip and, and his alarm clock was, was broken. So, um, you know, he's like, okay, well, my wife, she, you know, she's got an alarm clock. She usually wakes up early, but he didn't want to give in and lose the argument by asking her to wake him up early. So she, he took a piece of paper and he wrote a note. It says, you know, I've got a business trip tomorrow. Please make me up at 5 a.m. And he put it on her pillow where she knew she'd find it. Well, the next morning he wakes up and, and the sun's out. And he suddenly realizes it's way past five in the morning. He looks at his watch. It's nine in the morning. And he's about to blow up as his wife. You know, why didn't she wake him up? This was important. And he turns over and he sees a note on his pillow. And it says, it's 5 a.m., wake up. See, it never works to, to, to leave this unresolved conflict. Go silent treatment. It always does damage. No, deal with it. And also, it also says, don't make it about getting your own way. In reality, that's what most conflict often is. It's, we have this dream, and I want this, you want this. You know, I'm going to try to win. We think it's about winning. And not only that, but we kind of keep score in our mind. And so, well, if you won last time, I, you know, I've given in the last three times, and so it's my turn to win, so I'm going to dig in my heels even more. And, and we fight over that. In fact, I ran across this little cartoon that I think sums up what we often feel. It's a couple in marriage counseling, 
And, and one of them is saying, oh, we don't keep scoring our marriage doctor downs, but if we did, I'd be winning 212 to 137. And there's some of us that feels that, that we're keeping score and that we've you know, got to make sure and keep the momentum or it's our turn to win. But remember earlier in the message that we said the purpose of conflict isn't to fight against our spouse to win the battle and get our way. It's to fight with our spouse for something greater than either of our agendas, to seek unity. And what that means is that unity, that love, doesn't always get its own way. It won't, we won't, that won't be our goal. In fact, look what it says about this in 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Well, what's arrogance? Arrogance is, I'm right. Why do we argue? I'm right. I know. Love doesn't act in arrogance. It is not rude. What is rudeness? Rudeness is forcing our own way. Not only am I right, but this is what we're going to do. It is not insist on its own way. Okay, that's, what, that's what we do in argument. We're insisting on our way. It is not irritable or resentful. And when we argue, it's not only I'm not going to resist, but when the other person's pushing, I'm not going to be irritable. I'm not going to resent that in the past. See, God calls us to this totally different perspective. The last thing the Bible tells us not to do in conflict is to making it about fixing the, trying to fix the other person. You know, people come in for marital counseling, um, you know, I ask, what's the problem? You know what I find? The vast majority of times, each one is going to say, my spouse does this. They do this. Almost never does someone come in and say, well, the problem is me. I'm doing this and, and help me to fix, help me, me to be a better husband or a better wife. Now, let, you, let me tell you what I've learned in 30 plus years of being a pastor and doing a lot of marriage counseling. Um, if a person comes in, if a couple comes in and one of the couples, and the persons in the couple says, okay, well, let me tell you about the marriage. The problem that we face, it's not my problem. You know, my spouse is the problem. I need your help to tell me how to fix my spouse. Now, what I've learned is that what's going on off in my mind right now is that I'm listening to you and I'm, and I'm thinking, this might, might, light's going out in my mind and saying, I know what the problem is. You're the problem. And you're like, well, how can you say that? Well, when you come in and you say, well, let me tell you the problem, it's the other person, what you're really telling me is, well, Pastor Mike, you've got to understand. In every marriage, there's a perfect person. And in my marriage, I'm the perfect person. I'm the person that doesn't cause any problems, and, and I'm married to this imperfect person, and they're the ones that are all the problem. So I need your help to help me, the perfect person, figure out how to, to deal with this imperfect person. I want to tell you, there is no perfect person in marriage. And because there's no imperfect person, there isn't any marriage where we aren't at least part of the problem. And the fact is, is we come and if we're looking at the other person and we're trying to always fix them, God, if you read God's word, God, God's word never tells you how to fix someone else. He never tells me, you know, here's what your wife needs to know. He only tells me what I need to know, how to fix myself. And even I might say, well, but she's 90% of the problem. Even if I believe that, God says, okay, well, you focus on your 10%. You focus on yourself. Look what he says about this in Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. In verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. See, it's not my job to judge someone else's servant. My wife, she answers to God. She's his servant. She doesn't answer to me. 
And I'm, I, I'm, I answer to God, and that's all I have to be concerned about is am I answering to God for what he calls me to do, and I have to trust her to God. God's the one that's going to change her heart, not me. I just have to say, God, am I doing what's right? Now, let me go more quickly over, what about those times where it's not just about dealing with the differences, but what, what about those times that you've been wounded and when you've been wronged? where there's deep wounds. And for many, I know that's the case here. Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to confront the issue. You know, the Bible's really clear on this, is that we need to confront it. We need to recognize that, that, you know, just burying it, just, you know, just, you know, forgive and forget, bury and ignore, doesn't make it better. It's, It's an infection that will continue to grow and you need to deal with it. And the sooner you deal with it, the better. And as you confront it, there may be times that, you start with that with your spouse, and if they're not open, then bring in help. And look, look what the Bible says about this in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If you've got an issue, go to your spouse directly. Talk with them alone. Don't talk to anyone else. Try to deal with it between you and them. But if they're not open, if they don't respond, what does it say? But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if he's not open, if she's not open, you don't go tell all your friends, you don't go talk about it. What you do is you find one or two mature believers that you go to them and you say, will you help me? I'm not, I'm not asking you know, just to share, I'm not gossiping. I'm asking because I want you to be part of the solution. And so some kind of counseling, some kind of you go to and you bring someone else in. And then if that doesn't work, it continues in verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. It doesn't mean get up and make an announcement, you know, on Sunday morning, my husband's a jerk. No, that's not what it's calling us to. It says, no, what it's calling us to is it's saying, now go to the church leaders. Go to a pastor, go to an elder, and help us come alongside of you and help fix that. And we've seen times where God has done that, where God has has done some amazing healing. God's word works. So deal with it. Not only deal with it, but then acknowledge the wrong and the wound. And and this, again, starts with, if you're the one that's wronged, it's it's not only, I've got to, not only, I need to recognize what it is. I need to realize this is how I've been wronged. I need to to look at that and, and not only what somebody did, but how it's hurt me. And if we're on the other side, it's not only, well, I did this. I've, again, I've talked with people. Well, I know I had an affair, but, and then let's just move on. I know I broke this trust, but let's just move on, forgive and forget. No, there's a wound that's there. See, and this really plays into this, to use different language to say almost the same thing. It's we need to confess and own the sin and its consequences. That it's on the one hand we confront, but then as we're confronted and we're the one that is is, is guilty, we need to say, you know what? Not only have I done something wrong, but there's consequences to that. There are consequences. And again, if there's a broken trust, there's a consequence of building that trust back. There's a consequence of hurting with the person of saying, yeah, I've not only done what's wrong, but I cry with you because I realize the wound that I've done. I take ownership not only of the sin, but also of its consequences. And if you don't do that, you see, it's never going to be fully healed. In fact, this is true even in our relationship with God. And that's the example. Look at what it says in 1 John chapter 1. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Basically, if we're covering stuff up, 
you know, we're, we're lying to ourselves. We're lying in the relationship. And that's true in God, in our relationship with God, as with others. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is after this passage is talked about we're forgiven by Christ continually. We don't lose our salvation, but it's saying, even as a follower of Christ, I need to confess, I need to acknowledge to God, here's what I've done, here's the wound that I've done, here's how it's wrong, and only then is my relationship with God fully restored. I need to confess that sin before God, and then he cleanses from all unrighteousness. And the same thing's true here. It's a wound, and if you're covering it up and you're saying, well, we just need to forgive and forget, it's a wound that's gonna fester, and until you let it out and be exposed and say, here's the, not only the sin, but what it caused, the wound can't be healed. It can't be restored. And then lastly, we need to work towards forgiveness. And this specifically in marriage, if you have a, part, a partner and you've confronted and they've taken ownership and, and they've said they're sorry, when I say you need to work towards forgiveness, notice I didn't say you need to forgive them because it doesn't happen in many cases instantly. It's not like, okay, well, it's great. See, this is a process. And there's a process of saying, learning to say, I forgive you. A process of saying, I don't have it, and God, give me the ability to forgive, and, and I don't want to forgive, but to rebuild the trust, to rebuild the relationship, to be what God has designed it to be. Now, let me just very quickly in closing kind of just sum some of these things up and, and some keys that are, you know, finding oneness through conflict. And this is things that we're to do, you know, in, in all settings and both kinds of conflict and kind of just some overarching principles just in closing. First of all, remember to fight for your marriage. You know, why often, why do we avoid conflict? Because we just don't think it's worth it. Ultimately, what we're saying is, we don't value the relationship. You know, it's not worth the headache. It's not worth the pain. And basically you're saying, you're not worth it. The relationship's not worth it. I'd rather take the easy road out than to do the work of really seeking one, oneness, unity. Now, when do, we, when do we need to do this? When is it up to us? You know, what's interesting is that if you go to Matthew 5, it talks about if you remember that you have wronged a brother... You know, leave your gift at the altar and go and deal with that. So, okay, if we are the one that has wronged the other person, it's up to us. It's up to me. Well, then you go to Matthew 8, 18, and it says, if you realize that a brother has, you know, or I'm, I'm sorry, if, if Matthew 5, if, if a brother has something against you. Matthew 18 is if a brother has wronged you. So Matthew 5, if we are the one that's done wrong, we, it's up to us. Matthew 18, if the other person has wronged us, it's up to us. So in other words, it's always up to us. It's always up to us to take the initiative. It's never like, well, it's up to them. You know, I'm going to sit back. No, we always are called to take the initiative, but always to do so in a spirit of humility. Because then you have Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus talks about, you know, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own eye, to realize that I'm going to come and I'm going to do the conflict, but I at the same time have to be sensitive and, and to what I may have done. We need to remember if we don't, the warning of, of, of Ephesians 4.27, that it's a, a, like a foothold that Satan has in our heart. It's a cancer that we're letting grow in our lives. When we do that, we need to fight for our marriage, but also to remember to have faith. But the faith isn't in your marriage. The faith is in God. And you know what I find oftentimes people say, I've tried before and they aren't willing to listen and I just, I just give up. I don't think we're ever going to find you. I don't, I don't think we're ever going to get there. They're never going to listen. They're never going to be open. My friends, 
the goal here isn't to say, do you believe in their ability to change and your ability of your marriage to become all that you long for it to be? Is it your ability to somehow work in them and change them? It's about God's ability to do the miraculous. I mean, we just sang a song right before the message of, you know, God does the impossible. God doesn't, you know, we sing that song. Apply it to your life. Apply it to relationships. Apply it to your marriage. Do you believe that God can do the miraculous in your life? Have faith. Not, don't be driven by yourself or your ability, your faith in the other person, but in God's ability to do mount, move mountains. Pray for your spouse. Pray that God would change them. And as you fight for this, and if you have faith in God, realize that oftentimes that means that you're going to need to seek help and counsel. You know, we're, the fact is, I, I, you know, we need counseling. Why? Because if I struggle in my marriage, it's generally because I have blind spots that I'm not aware. And the problem with my blind spots is I generally don't see my blind spots. That's true for all of us. We'll have blind spots. We all have things that we're just not aware of the damage that we're doing. And so we need a third party to come in and to see things that we don't see. And that's what the Bible, we think about even, it talked about in Matthew 18, where it says, bring it to someone else. Go and seek counsel, seek help. The problem is that a lot of us, we're just too proud to admit that we don't have it all together. We're too proud to admit that we need someone's help. Or, or this fallacy that we think that good marriages, you know, don't need counseling. Here's the reality. If you have a good marriage, find someone with a great marriage, they probably have gotten counseling somewhere along the way. They have a good marriage because they have sought counsel. They've gotten help. Good, you don't have good marriages. It's not that they don't need help. It's good marriages are good because they've gotten help. The ones that struggle are the ones that don't seek that help. I'm going to put myself out there even in this. Sandy and I have been married for, Sandy agreed for me to say this. You know, we've been married for almost 31 years. We have a wonderful marriage. It's growing, and I love her very much. I continue to grow better. But just last week, I talked about how there were times in my marriage I was screwing things up. It was going the wrong direction. And I'm thankful that I had people in my life that knew me enough and that had enough you know, guts to take the risk of being direct with me and challenging me on things. I needed that, and our marriage is better because of it. Last summer, for those that were here last summer, you knew that we took a little bit of time off last summer. And part of that, I openly shared that Sandy and I went out, we met with a counselor for, ex for one week ex extensive where we're just there for a week really going deep on things. And it's not like our marriage was falling apart. It's not that we had major problems, but we're sitting there saying, hey, we want this to be better. We've got issues that we want to deal with when they're still small because we want to be one. And so I'm willing to openly share that. Why? Because I'm willing to, at the same point, say, I don't think a whole lot of you have way better marriages than me and, and, and Sandy, and you're like, oh, yeah, we don't need any help. But we all need help. And part of that is being open about it and being courageous enough, and in a sense, even for men, being man enough to be able to come and say, I'm going to be the one that battles for my marriage, even if it means humbling myself and getting someone's help. Now, as we do this, also realize, don't try to be the Holy Spirit in your, in your spouse's life. Because what happens is conflict, we often try to change them, and we're just, you know, well, they're doing this wrong. And, and again, God's calling you to say, okay, what am I calling you to do? I love what Ruth Graham said about this. She said, it was a great day in her life when she realized that it was not her job to change her husband. She said, it was my job to love Billy and God's job to change him. 
what we often try to do is we try to change. I, God, you need to do this. And so here, let me help. Let me, and I'm trying to be the Holy Spirit. What I have found is that the Holy Spirit is a better Holy Spirit than I am. And he does a much better job if I just sit there and say, okay, God, let, let me let you change me. Let me pray for my wife. And God, I'll leave it up to you to do your work and your time. Don't, don't resist the temptation to try to do the Holy Spirit's job. And then lastly, learn to accept and to remember and give God's grace. How do we do this? How do we forgive? How do we be patient with each other? How do we, all of this ultimately is an expression of our relationship with Jesus. The fact is that the relationship with Jesus starts by acknowledging, God, I've wronged you. I'm a sinner. I deserve your punishment. And you have shown me grace. And how did Jesus do that? He died on the cross. He paid the price of my sin. He did so personally taking that cost upon himself. And how many times have I failed God? And I feel like, God, you should just write me off. God, I just, and what happens? He's patient with me. He perseveres with me. He continues to shape me. If I had a fraction of that patience and grace towards my wife as that God has towards me, we've got a really good marriage. And when I don't have it, when I feel like I can't do it, I can't persist, then I've got to go back and remember how God has loved me. I need to re- accept that, remember that, and be overwhelmed by the love and grace that God has given me and to say, God, give me that grace to show to my wife as well. And what happens is he starts to change me. And he starts to change me. Oftentimes he starts, through changing me, he also then lets it spill over and he starts to change us as well. My friends, we're, there's a lot here. I know I'm just doing really introductory. But I realize that there are almost certainly people here and you've come in today and you're struggling in your marriage. And you've got issues that God needs to heal. And they might be little issues, and I encourage, deal, deal with it before, before it becomes big. Or they might be big issues, and you're ready to walk out. He believe not in your ability to change, but God's ability to do miracles, and he can. But let it start today. And it might not even be just in your marriage. There may be other relationships that you realize, okay, man, I need to apply this towards that person, toward that relationship. Let it be the start of something powerful, some great healing. As followers of Christ, we should have marriages that are distinctively different, that reflect the image of Christ. And we realize that one of the greatest hindrances to that is our inability to handle this issue of conflict well. It's not easy. It's hard. And most of us have a lot of going back and fixing things in the past that we have to do. But it's never too late. And God's able to heal the wounds, heal the scars, forgive Teach us and give us that ability to heal and actually work towards, not against our spouse, but work with them towards oneness and unity. And that's it for this week's message. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day and we'll see you next week.